Hey, Coach Arlen here. What do Walt Disney, Andrew Carnegie, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Edison, and FDR all have in common? They shared one secret that propelled them to achieve remarkable success. They each belonged to a mastermind group. If you've never experienced the power of a mastermind group, now is your opportunity. Join my business success mastermind group today. New cohorts are starting soon. To learn more, go to ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. The Courage to Lead, episode 211. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Arlen here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having a great week. I'm having a great week, and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest. Please help me welcome Sean Weisbrot. Sean Weisbrot is an American entrepreneur, investor, and advisor who lived in Asia for 14 years. After getting a degree in psychology, he bought a one-way ticket to China at the age of 22. He lived in China for 10 years and taught himself to be fluent and literate in Mandarin at the business level. He started multiple businesses in Asia, including an agency that sold $15 million in services in 18 months. In 2018, he started Nerve, a B2B software as a service company. In 2020, he started We Live to Build, a podcast about entrepreneurship and psychology where he interviews business owners grossing seven to nine figures annually. Then in 2022, he turned We Live to Build into a consulting firm with fractional executive services. Amazing. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, this is awesome. And is it true you are in Lisbon? Is that true? Your uh, your LinkedIn profile says you're in Lisbon? So I moved to Lisbon in the summer of 2022 Okay. Uh, because of the pandemic. I figured Asia was closed. It'll be closed for way too long. I don't want to deal with waiting in the US for it. So I'm just going to move somewhere else and we'll see what happens. So uh, most of the year I am based in Lisbon, although if you care to look behind me. I'm currently in Miami visiting my family. Yeah. However, uh, this is the 13th of January. I don't know when this is going live, but I'm leaving tomorrow morning for Guatemala and I'll stay there for a month and, and then come back here and then back to Portugal in March. Amazing. That is awesome. Very cool. Yeah. That's my wife and I are, are roaming. We're staying domestic for now, but yeah, we've got, we've got our, our eyes set on a few places down in South America and yeah, very cool. Good stuff. All right. I want to come back and talk about all that, how you got your start, uh, the courage that it took to go to China uh, at age of 22 with a one-way ticket, all the stuff that you've done there, the things that you've built, who you work with, how you help them, and a bunch of other stuff. But before we get started, I've got 10 questions I'd like to ask. These are questions I ask every one of my guests, uh, questions made famous on the TV show Inside the Actor's Studio, where the host James Lipton asks these same questions of his Hollywood guests from TV, film, and stage. And I figure if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly good enough for my guests. So Sean, if you're ready, I've got 10 questions for you. Sure. All right. Question number one, what is your favorite word? I like silence, actually. I think si si maybe silence would be my favorite word, okay. although I've never, never thought about it. Very cool. All right. What is your least favorite word? Uh, mm, that one's really hard. Because I, I want to say no, but then I also know that it's really important to say no. Absolutely. So that that's a very tricky one. All right. We'll let you think about that one. What turns you on? 
doing what you say you're going to do, actually following through on your promises. That's like baseline importance. Very cool. All right. What turns you off? Uh, Lying. Nice. What sound or noise do you love? Uh, the, the bell on my dog's collar because it means he's coming towards me. Cool. All right. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, any sort of city pollution, buses, cars, any sort of honking is really frustrating. Yeah. Hammers. Yeah. All that stuff. All right. Uh, question seven, what is your favorite curse word? Starts with a C ends in a T Okay. Four, four letter word. We'll leave it at that. Awesome. All right. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? When I was younger, I wanted to be a uh, biologist, like um, biomedical engineer. I Mm. wanted to use biology, biomimicry to create technology that would help people. And I tried to go to university for that. And I realized really fast how important chemistry was and how I was horrible at it. (laughs) So I went back to psychology, which was something I, it was the only thing I really liked in high school. Okay. Uh, what profession would you not like to do? Being a banker. Nice. Okay. That's an unusual, usually accountant comes up a lot, but banker. Okay. All right. Final question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I don't believe in that. (laughs) Like, I don't, I, yeah. Um, You did a good job. Yeah. That's, that's a really, it's something that I never think about because it's, it's not something I believe in. So it's, it's difficult to, to think of something I'd want to hear. I think everyone would probably want to hear like, welcome to your new home or like, you did a good job. You deserve this. Like, I, I think that's what, people probably want to hear probably want to hear yeah um yeah welcome Any, anything hear. shy that would be concerning i think but no i've had other people say I'm, I'm not really i would probably say oh look you do exist and god would say wow look you do exist and that's where we leave it but I that's cool i'd rather be in hell with like the fun people <laughs> you'd be way too busy to think about anything right yeah. all right good job all right sean we're going to take a short break then we're going to come back talk about how you got your start uh like i said traveling to China at age 22, uh, all the work that you did over there, the companies you built and started, and then back here, the work you're doing. Um, and at some point, transition into courage and leadership. All right. So we'll talk about all of that and more right after this. So stick with us. Imagine having a trusted group of CEOs at your disposal. Imagine having your very own peer advisory team who could work you through the problems and questions in your business before you had to make those difficult decisions. Imagine you had a group of advisors that had your back and met for the sole purpose of making you successful in your business. What would you be able to accomplish then? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. And I'm back with my guest, Sean Weisbrot. Sean, thanks again for taking time out to uh, to visit with us. Uh, appreciate your time. So uh, moving to China. I mean, this podcast is about courage. That seems like it would take a lot of courage. Why China? 
and why a one-way ticket? There's multiple different stories I've come to tell about this. Um, it kind of depends on who the audience is. One of the stories is, this one is the most realistic one. Basically, I, I knew I didn't want to live in America, um, but I knew that I needed to get a degree from an American university to be able to find it easier to find a job outside of the U.S. afterwards. So uh, in my senior year of university, I started uh, a spreadsheet of 60 countries and I started analyzing all of the different ways in which they're different from each other and similar to each other and which one would be the best one for me. I settled on Japan. I then, uh, once I had my degree, went to go apply for the JET program. So the Japanese government offers a, a program for people to come and teach English in the public schools. They call us the JET program. I called up the JET program. I said, I want to apply. How do I do it? And they're like, well, actually, our deadline's in two days. Apply next year. And I said to them on the phone, there is no way in hell I am staying in America for another year. Thank you. Goodbye. I then chose China because it was next to Japan. And I thought, maybe I'll move to, you know, maybe I'll go to China for a few months and maybe I'll use that to move to Japan. Well, I ended up staying in China for a decade mm -hmm. and still to this date have not been to Japan, uh, dis uh, despite having spent uh, multiple times in layover in the Tokyo airport. Wow. And what was it that, that drew you to Asia? I mean, aside from getting away from U.S., was it just the political things here in the U.S. you wanted to get away from or? or... I, I can't say... I knew enough about the world at that time to say that that was relevant. It was more that I didn't feel like I fit into American culture. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I had to explore something different to what I knew to be able to make a decision for myself about who I am and what I want. And I felt like the only real way to do that was to completely remove myself from anything I knew so that there'd be no barriers to growth. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. And then you say you started a lot of different businesses while you were in China. What were some of those businesses? The very, very, very first one uh, was an English summer camp at my girlfriend's mom's house. Okay. That lasted like a summer. We made, you know, we made a few thousand dollars doing it. It's okay. We never did it again. Um, but the first like proper business was called Idea Exchange. And it was an offline event in Southern China. What happened was I had applied for TED and I was rejected. So I decided to make my own TED in China. Okay. Um, and so it was called Idea Exchange. This happened simultaneously with the fact that I met a guy from America who was living in that city with me. And he was already in the process of creating an event. And I asked to join him in planning it. And then after the first event was beyond our dreams, you know, wildly successful, we had a hundred people show up with no budget. Like we, we spent no effort on telling anybody about it. We, we got a 40 person room, figured 10 people would show up, hundred people showed up. Wow. Um, he decided it was way too, it had way too much potential for the amount of time he needed to put into it. So he let me have it. So kind of like I, I had applied for Ted and was rejected. And then I met him like within that year. And then I, I was like, I want to help you do this. And then he said, you can have it, take it. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to turn this into my own Ted. Nice. Um, but the reason why I felt the courage to start it with him was that I was fired from my uh, job as an HR manager. And the reason I was fired was because I got a concussion while I was on holiday in Panama. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I had gone back to America to get a new work visa for that company. So to be fired on my way back to China was kind of annoying. Um, they said, you can keep the work visa, but you don't have a job. But I already had an apartment. I already had things there. I already had started to build a life in this new city in Southern China. I had been there for about a, about nine, 10 months in that new city. I was like, I'm not going to like stay in America. Like I'm going back to China no matter what, even though I had a really nasty concussion and it, it took me a year and a half to really recover. Um, but I, I went back anyways. And so during that period of, I don't have a job, but I have some cash saved from that job. I don't know what I'm going to do, but what I do know is I'm never going to work for anyone else again, because the fact that they thought nothing of just tossing me aside tells me that I can't trust them. Therefore, I need to be self-reliant and I need to be in, in control of my financial future. Therefore, I will not work for anyone else ever again Nice. Um, as an employee. And then that thing happened. And, and in between those things, I, I was working on uh, recovering my health, getting better because um, I, was, I was dealing with dizziness and headaches and uh, blurry vision, really nasty stuff. Hmm. Um, and I, I managed to write three books through that, nonfiction books about Chinese culture and American culture as if you wanted to go live and work and, and um, you know, be a part of American society if you were Chinese and the same if you're you know, a Westerner wanting to go to, into the Chinese society. Um, and that helped pass the time and all that. So yeah, the first event was really this uh, offline um, event. And uh, at its peak, we had 700 people attending offline every month at a single venue that the government gave us for free. They were giving us uh, free media coverage. They were um, giving me opportunities to go on radio shows and TV shows that were Mandarin speaking only. So of course I had to speak Mandarin and then, um, and like, they were asking me questions like, oh, what do you think about this thing? Like there was one that was a current events. So they had a group of like, citizens, right? It's just random, normal people invited to give their opinions on current day topics. And they're like, oh, we've got this foreigner. He can speak Chinese. Why doesn't he come on your show once every week or every two weeks, whatever, and 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 let you let him tell you in Chinese, like what he thinks, what foreigners nice. think about yeah. life in China right now. Um, that was really cool. They also paid me to give private speeches to them in Chinese about, you know, life in China. They paid me to organize private events where expats could um, meet with the government officials and talk to them directly and and give them feedback on their lives in China as well. Wow. Um, and they paid me to train government officials uh, uh, to shadow the, so like the city government officials, like maybe 20 of them every year would go over to Chicago and shadow the city government there. And so what I was training them on was cross-cultural communications and American psychology and, and nuances of the culture. Like how would you drive, you know, what are like the driving signs and, and what are the, you know, miles per hour, like trying to understand the, the differences and, and how they could fit yeah. in that um, and how they could best learn from them, the questions they should be asking them and how to get knowledge from them. Nice. Um, really, really, really fun, cool stuff. You know, I was the the top of a platform of this massive community with over 10,000 followers all over China, watching our videos we put online. Um, you know, it, it was a speech event. Sorry, I didn't explain, I guess, that earlier. So basically, it was like TED in that regard. Nice. Um, and is that still going? Is that ongoing now? No, we did it for two years. Okay. And uh, I actually went broke doing it the first time around because it was my first like proper business and I had no idea how to monetize it. And I tried really hard. I had a big network in China. I was, and the government was trying to help. We were going to different large companies, having meetings with the bosses, trying to get them to, um, you know, sponsor us. They wanted to give us like their latest toy, like, you know, like Oprah, everyone gets yeah. a toy, but like, <laughs> I need cash to build a team. Right. Like, I don't want your toy. Yeah. Um, so I, I had a lot of issues in that regard. 
Um, so finally I went broke and I had to stop. Um, but in the meantime, one of the guys that was there uh, attending the events became a mentor of mine and he taught me how to understand the value that I had. And so that was where I understood my value as a connector, where I had this massive network. And it was just a matter of understanding who needed what and who else in that network um, could provide it and how I could maintain my value through the process so that I could make money from it. And that's how I came up with the agency, which then, you know, within two years from him teaching me, this went gangbusters. So, wow. um, and that's then, the one that you made, you said 15 million in sales yes. in 18 months. Nice. Yes. Um, and so some of that was me selling other people's services. Um, and so I would, you know, the company would take heavy commissions from that. And then there were some services that we provided, uh, natively or, you know, for, with internal, uh, people yeah. doing so it was a mix of, uh, internal external service promotion as an agency provider. So, nice. um, yeah, I did that for nearly two years and, uh, then the market wind shifted, I left China and I decided to take some of the profit and, uh, you know, build a new company, which is the tech company. And uh, yeah. Wow. So building a company in China, I mean, there, there are people here in the U.S., in their home country, who have difficulty finding the resources and, and the connections and stuff like that. You were doing this in a foreign country. You had to learn foreign language in Chinese to and Mandarin at a business level. I don't think people understand it. This isn't just conversational. This is right. deep Mandarin, right? To be at a yes. business level. So, so I was, I had learned about technical things in manufacturing, in tech, different, you know, technologies like blockchain, for example. So I was learning about them in English and Chinese at the same time. So that when I could, when I needed to have a conversation, I could do it in either language. Nice. Wow. Yeah. But where did you find the resources and 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 how did you make those connections? Like I said, there are people here in the U.S. that, that struggle to start a business because they don't know how to find these and you're doing it in a foreign country. How did you do that? Well, I think first was my my background in psychology. I was deeply curious about Chinese culture and that expanded into the language, the history, the geography, the economics, the politics, right? I, I wanted to know everything about China and, and Chinese culture and society. And so having that sincere curiosity coupled with the actual real ability to communicate in deep levels across a wide variety of topics, um, and then having built that platform, that event platform, the event platform gave me the visibility. It allowed people to go, oh, I want to know this guy hmm. because he's the he's the builder of something. He's somebody. Um, I I was a minor celebrity in that city uh, and actually in that province, um, in Guangdong province. So people were coming to me asking me for things. And that's how I started. When, when you combine all of those facets with the education that my mentor gave me, it all started to click and make sense. Very cool. So I didn't really have to do much except like spend years learning, quietly observing, asking questions. Like it's, it's a process. Anything is a process. Yeah. You know, like everyone says, oh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a 10 year overnight success. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, I, how did I do it? I spent a lot of energy learning yeah, and trying things and meeting people and talking to them and learning about them and, and, you know? Yeah. And then getting that mentor, you said that's when things really clicked for you. He, he came to me. Nice. 
Yeah. He was like, I love your events. I can see that you're struggling financially. It's, it's quite obvious to everybody that comes. Um, but yet you continue to do it. I love your passion. I love the quality of the events. It's very high. You, you put a lot of love into it and I want to teach you how to make money. Okay, great. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going yeah, no to say that. no to that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. So, yeah. So that, that's how I got into that position. Very cool. I, I think one of the, the uniqueness factors for it was that there's very few people in China that are white and can speak Chinese. So people want to know you and then, oh, you're also the, you know, the leader of this platform. Yeah there's this double curiosity or it, it, it multiplies the curiosity and, and them wanting to know me. But and I think just trying to learn the language, even when we travel, we try to learn a little bit, at least some common phrases so we can interact with people and stuff. And I think they appreciate that. You know, if somebody comes to the US, if they can't speak a word of English, it's frustrating, right? But if you see they're trying, you're willing to give a little bit of time and help them out. You know, so we've done that in in, in France and Spain and, and Greece, wherever we try to learn a little bit so we can we can talk to them. I'm sure that that helped open some doors to where people took time to to help you out because you're actually trying to learn the language and, and speak to them in their language. Right. I think that was another part of the secret of our success is because the government was willing to support what I was doing because they could see that I wasn't a threat yeah. to them. I was trying to add value to society and there's not many people. There were not many people like me in China, honestly. And so the government wanted to celebrate me. They wanted to celebrate what we were doing. They wanted everyone to know that this was happening in their city because it also would make them look good for promotions, right? I'm not naive. They were, they were using me to make their own careers look better. Totally fine. No problem with that. You support me, I'll scratch your back. Absolutely. But the fact that they they had the willingness and the openness to communicate with me and support it was really special. And I don't think that's going to happen ever again in China, the way things are now, unfortunately. Yeah. So I was there at the right time. Yeah. So tell me about We Live to Build. Yeah, so uh, August 2020, my team from Nerve said, we need you to be more visible on social media because you've spent the last 14 years in Asia and you don't have a personal brand. You know, we're trying to build a tech company that's global facing, but nobody knows who you are. That's not good. There's an expectation. Um, and I said, great, but I don't want to tweet. And they're like, well, go be a guest on other people's podcasts. And I said, great idea. I'm going to build my own podcast. Okay. <laughs> Because I remembered from doing the offline events, when you are the leader of something, everyone wants to know you. So I thought, if I'm the one who's in control of the podcast, I can set the direction, I can set the tone, I can do it how I want. And it's very different from a, a 10-word tweet where people can very easily misconstrue what you say. So if there's anything that I say, I have the ability to speak in long form and people can you know, take it however they want. But I'm also not generally uh, a figure who um, tries to make noise. Yeah, I, I do have my beliefs, but generally it's well-wishing of humanity. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some, there's people out there that try to get attention by being diversive or exactly. divisive, divisive and um, negative and all that. And I, I, I want to avoid all of those things because it's not who I am. I don't have energy for drama. 
Right. Exactly. exactly. But being a podcast host is super important. Very cool. And how, so the podcast started when 2020? Uh, yeah. So within a month, I had the name, the domain and recorded the first few episodes. Very cool. The and longest you... thing was getting the mic because I was in Vietnam and it was the, it was in the middle of COVID. So I had to wait like two or three weeks to get the mic from Singapore because <laughs> they didn't have them in Vietnam. They were wow. sold out. Wow. But now you interview executives, right? Seven to nine figure executives. Yes. So the majority of the people that I interview are founders of bootstrap to profit or VC funded startups. And uh, my general uh, really solid threshold, uh, you know, my, my uh, minimum requirement is that they've either raised a million dollars or they're grossing a million annually or both. Nice. Um, but then I've also talked to some investors um, who are like, you know, they're VCs out of Germany or Australia or Canada or, or different places. Um, and I've also talked to experts. Um, now, those experts don't have to be making a million dollars a year, but um, some of them are. But they have to have value that they're going to share, right? Yeah. So, for example, I yeah. did a, an episode. My very first uh, video episode was with a cybersecurity expert based out mm -hmm. of Portugal. Well, he works for a German company, but he's Portuguese. Um, and so we were talking about cybersecurity. So he's got a PhD. He works for them. There's no way he's a millionaire, but who cares? He has an expertise yeah. in this and that's the value I wanted. Nice. Now, have you learned Portuguese at, at the business level? No. <laughs> Portuguese is um, a different beast. Yeah. Because there's a lot of English spoken in Portugal compared to China, where there's very, very almost very little, almost no English spoken mm. at a societal you know level on a daily basis across China. Um, in Portugal, it's it's embedded in their education system to a point where almost anyone under the age of thirty should be able to speak English very well. Wow. So there's basically no incentive to speak Portuguese. Plus, there's a lot of tourists from other countries in Europe and and abroad and. Um, so they're used to this global environment. Um, not to mention Portuguese, like European Portuguese, isn't a very fun language. So I find myself being really attracted to the Brazilian form of Portuguese. Okay. But if you try to speak it there, they'll look down on you because you're not speaking the European Portuguese. So uh, I'm secretly enamored by the Brazilian version, but um, I am learning some of the European version. Fun. That's awesome. All right. So you, we live to build started as a podcast, but now you turn that into a business where you're offering fractional uh, services, right? For executives. Talk yes. a little bit about that. So my partner for the tech company um, has a lot of experience as a, a COO. And uh, I've done a lot of advisory um, and consulting as well, strategic advisory, things like that at a high, you know, high level business. The uh, value that we seek to provide businesses is in helping them understand where they're not uh, running as efficiently as they can. So for example, let's say you're a series A company, you've just raised five, $10 million. You probably don't have a COO yet. You may not have a CMO yet. You may not have a CFO yet. Right. So there's skills that you desperately need, but just aren't available with the team you have. So we come in, we do an audit, we look at what you're doing, what you're not doing, and figure out from there, you know, how we can help. Now I'm like glossing over the details. The this sure. audit can take a month or a month and a half. It's a lot of work. 
especially when you've got, you know, a lot of C, uh, series A companies are already, you know, 50, 100 people, some of them. So when you have like a, a team and a product and revenue and users, um, it's very difficult to make changes. And so it's really important that we go through, uh, you know, meticulously and understand exactly what's going on in order to be able to make better decisions and, and help the team to, you know, look at how do they plan their workforce better? How do, can they reduce their costs? How can they improve their revenue and increase the chances of profitability or, or increase the profitability that they already have? Um, you know, are they lacking business intelligence um, that can help them to make better decisions, right? So there's a lot of nuanced um, services that kind of happen uh, once we do the audit to figure out what it is they need. Nice. Yeah, I think this is an area that a lot of businesses don't take advantage of, and they really should, because like you said, they're not quite big enough to have the full C-suite, Um but they need somebody that comes in that knows the stuff. And, and what do you, your, your folks then would go in or you set them up to come in quarterly to help out or how do they do that? It's just. The, so the, the piece of it. yeah. So the goal is, you know, once we do the audit, we understand what the company needs and then uh, that will tell us, you know, what that relationship looks like based on the proposal we make. But in general, you might see, you know, my partner, Mark, you'll come in and, and assume the role of COO for a brief period of time and help you set up those systems or fix those leaks in your data pipelines or whatever is going on. Um, and then the goal becomes, you know, either do you want us to help you find someone that we can then train to replace ourselves? Or do you just want to have us, you know, give you a few hours a week or a few hours a month ongoing to make sure that things are still working because yeah. hopefully with that amount of money you have available and the, you know, that part of the life cycle your business is in, there's no reason why you you can't build towards something that's, you know, not just sustainable, but scalable in a way that you don't really need us. Yeah. And then do you help them uh, maybe interview to fill that position at some point once you get all they, the foundational stuff in? Yeah. If that's what they want. Nice. So sometimes they'll say, yeah, we want you to do it. Other times they go, yeah, you know, we can do it. But generally it's easier if we do it just because we know what to train on. We, yeah. we know what we've built. We know why we've built it. The company has some understanding, but they're going to need someone to come and run it on a daily basis. So um, part of that process might be helping them to, to develop a better hiring process and so at least if we're not the ones running the process to hire that person, at least they've got the process and it's up to them to decide whether they want to follow it or not. Yeah. Very cool. So what do you look for in a leader? Well, there's many different kinds of leaders and there's many different kinds of positions that leaders would be sitting in. So uh, do, is there a little more uh, clarity you can offer? Well, you've worked for people. Yeah. I mean, you've led your own businesses, your own companies, you work for these leaders and help them with the fractional stuff. What do you, what do you look for to say, yeah, this, this person is, has got the leadership skills. I mean, a lot of things are, you know, communication is huge. Um, the decision-making abilities, right. The visionary side of it. Is there one thing that you can kind of look at somebody and say, ah, this person's got it. Uh, I mean, again, every organization is different, right? So there's some organizations that are more tech inclined, some that are more product inclined, some that are more marketing inclined. So every every company has its own kind of specialty, the thing that they're best at. And so I can't say I look at someone and say, this is going to be a good leader because 
there's a lot of nuance in there, right? Are they the right leader for that business? Is this, does this business need this kind of a person, right? Maybe they don't need this person, but maybe they are the best person, but maybe they're the best person for a different company. Um, so there, there's a lot of psychology that goes into it. I can't, I, I don't know if you could just look at a person and go, yes, this is the person I think you need to spend time with them and talk with them and learn. Um, but, you know, when, when I and, and my partner, Mark, have done hiring, generally what we're looking for is, you know, we create a psychological based, you know, process where we are trying to find reasons to tell people no. Hmm. Our goal is, you know, let's say, for example, the, the very top, we, we have like an ad on LinkedIn. And in the ad, we'll say, you know, don't click on the apply here button on LinkedIn, click on this link and fill out the form to continue. And we'll get hundreds of people <laughs> clicking the apply here button. They're all disqualified. Why? They didn't listen. So, you know, generally for me, it doesn't matter what position you're trying to fill. If that person can't listen, they don't deserve a shot because not listening is a personality flaw. You yeah. can't fix that. They're either arrogant or they're lazy or they aren't empathetic. There's something, there's a deeper issue in their psyche that's preventing them from being able to listen. And then we encounter this way too many times. Sure. Um, so yeah, listening is important. Absolutely. Uh, being, being able to come up with ideas. Now, if you're talking about at the executive level specifically, um, not, not just being able to listen, but also being able to take what you've heard and turn it into something that can be used and be extrapolated on and be built out. Right. That's what you would expect from an executive. Right? So, so let's say, for example, um, I've got, uh, a marketing manager, I might expect that marketing manager to be able to manage a few people to, on like small projects. If I want to hire a marketing director, I might expect that that marketing director can handle maybe the budgeting for that project and be able to tell me how much it might cost to do that thing. Um, and then actually manage the managers so that they make sure the manager is on task and, and on time and on budget and, and these things. So it requires more analytics. Um, and then, you know, if I wanted to hire a chief marketing officer, I might expect them to be able to come up with the entire strategy for the business, for how to market it, and tell me how much it's going to cost and what they were going to do with the money and why they're going to do it and how long it's going to take to see an ROI. So I expect them to be very deep in the, in the, the, the data and the analytics. Um, and then have, and be able to delegate their, some of those responsibilities to the marketing director or the marketing manager, if there is no one in between them. Um, and so when you're hiring for different levels, you're looking for different skills. And sometimes you can train someone up and sometimes you have to hire someone in if the, the people you have available to you can't be trained up. Um, so yeah, there, there's a tremendous amount of psychology and nuance. Man, Absolutely. So your degree absolutely helps you in those areas. That's awesome. A million percent. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about courage. Uh, the the thought of at 22, buying a one-way ticket and going to China, someplace like China, can be scary for some people and stuff. Was that an easy decision for you to make? And where did you find the courage to do that? Well, like I said, I, I knew I didn't want to live in America. So that courage had been with me since I was 17. Um, and I tested the waters going to study abroad in okay. um, Austria. I stayed in a, with a host family in Salzburg for two months when I was 18. I turned 19 in Europe. That was cool. 
Um, and then the year after that, I went to Israel for two weeks on a guided tour. So like, it wasn't like China was my first time leaving America. I think it would have been a lot harder. So I, I knew I needed to test myself. I needed to travel to a few countries, live outside of the country for a little bit of time, see what it was like. Um, so we getting... traveled by yourself to these places. Uh, the tour in Israel, I went with my brother Okay. And it was guided. So they met us in in New York and they took us on the planes together. So okay. I, my hand was held pretty well. Um, the one for Europe, I, I went with my university. However, because my plane left Miami late, I arrived in Spain late, which means I missed my flight to Germany. And therefore, I missed the van that would take us to Salzburg. So I was actually on my own in Spain for 12 hours. And then I was on my own in Munich in the airport and i had to find my own way to get to salzburg so at, at the age of 19 no at the age of 18 um was a really it was challenging and unique and really interesting because i made it you know i was i was 12 hours late but you know this was 2005 we didn't have smartphones right i right. had to find a payphone and i had to call my mom in america on the payphone and wake her up and tell her to call the the people at my university who weren't awake yet to tell them that I wasn't there. It was already a Sunday. So there was no way to really contact like, and then they had to contact the leaders of the program in Austria to tell them that I missed it. And that I was actually coming. Um, so like, it was a tremendous amount of communication back and forth using payphones. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, just finding strangers who were willing to help. And yeah, it was freaking cool. Um, but, but those experiences gave me a lot more confidence sure. to, to move to China. Um, but I also had literally no idea about China. I knew nothing about it. I didn't know, like literally nothing, zero. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what I was getting into. And I found an agent who helped me to find a job being an English teacher. And they, you know, they said, oh, Wuhan's a great city. It's up and coming. It's this and that. And like, it was none of what she said. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I learned to love it in my, in, in its own way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would totally do it again. That is awesome. And now you said you're, you're living currently in, in Lisbon, but you're heading down to Guatemala? Yes. Week? Yeah. Awesome. So one of my close friends I met in China uh, is from Colombia. And I haven't seen him since he came to visit me in Vietnam four years ago. And he's uh, moved back to Colombia over a year ago. And his mother is from Guatemala. She lives there now still. So he's he decided that he was going to go visit her and and I decided I was going to join him. So we're going to spend about a month together in Guatemala, traveling around the country, because there's a lot of parts of the country he hasn't seen yet. So this will be a totally new experience for me and a semi new experience for him. Excellent. Very cool. Uh, the whole nomad life. I love it. Like I said, right now we're saying domestic. One of these days we're going to get out across the borders and yeah, big stuff. Very cool. So if people want to learn more about you and, and your podcast, and everything like that, how can they do that? What's your website? Uh, so the website's a little bit out of date and I need to, I need to change it. So the best way is really just looking at youtube.com um, slash at Sean Weisbrot. No dats or do, uh, no, no dots or dashes or anything like that. Okay. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of videos. I've got 200 plus videos on my YouTube there and um, have uh, yeah 126 episodes published. Um, I just recorded my 140th episode today on the 13th of January. Very cool. I'm about to record my 141st um, <laughs> in an hour. And nice. uh, yeah, tons of great content to come. So basically the podcast is about the humanity of entrepreneur. Uh, yeah. The humanity and psychology of entrepreneurship, why we do what we do, what decisions we make, how they affect us. Um, I've done episodes about addiction and grief 
and um, fear and shame and curiosity. I did one about um, uh, isolationism. Um, I did one about using psychology in your business. I did one about uh, postpartum depression. Um, uh, I did one about the use of psychedelics. I did a few episodes about the use of psychedelics and mental health. Um, But then I also do episodes where I talk to people about their journeys with their businesses. Um, And then there's other episodes where it's like very focused on uh, legal stuff. What what do you need to know about this thing about, you know, I just did an episode about chat GPT. So we were talking about what is chat GPT? What has your experience been with it? What are the pros of it? What are the cons of it? What are some really dystopian things we should be careful of with it? Um, you know, the, these kinds of things. Um, so sometimes the episodes are really conversational and sometimes they're, they're much more interview based where I'm just asking a question and, um, and sitting back and letting them answer and then coming up with the next question based on what they just said. Very cool. And then if people want to learn more about the uh, fractional executive stuff that you do with, uh, we live to build, how can they do that? Yeah. So I've got Twitter. They can just send me a DM on Twitter. Um, okay. my handle is at Sean underscore Weisbrot. And are you active on LinkedIn at all? I've got LinkedIn. It's it's on my bookmark bar. So every morning, like it opens up, but generally I don't do anything on it. Okay. Yeah. They can contact you on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, they could contact me on LinkedIn. Sure. Um, They're both fine, really. I'm I'm an easygoing person. (laughs) All right. Wherever you happen to be in the world, they can, they can track you down. Very cool. Sean, this has been great. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for, uh, for coming on and stuff and good luck with everything safe travels and uh yeah hope to talk to you again soon cheers appreciate it all right listeners hope you guys are taking a lot of good notes uh definitely some things to check out here i'll have links to the youtube channel uh links to your twitter and your linkedin and just so people can get in touch with you and follow and uh make sure you share this episode with your family friends and colleagues and stick around because there's always more coming all right cheers thanks yes. very much all right Coach Harlan saying so long for now